I want to talk to you today about the greatness of God. We sing songs all the way back to bigger than any mountain, bigger than any, I can't remember all the words, bigger than any, any mountain I can or cannot see, bigger than any problem. We sing how great thou art. We sing in these days how great is our God. Our God is greater, our God is stronger. But it's very easy, and you know this, and you've heard it said before, we can stand here and sing these songs with our heart and our mind in neutral and not really understand the significance of what we're singing. How many of you have ever done that? I've done that. Haven't you done that? Just sort of like put your brain in neutral and, and just the words kind of came out by, by rote and, and then sometime later you began to realize, oh, what I was really singing was this. And that's true for all of us. But I hope today, in just the next few minutes, that we can, all of us, have our faith enlarged to get a grander view of how great our God is. I need more faith. Anybody else here need more faith? Need more faith to, to believe God and how great He is and to believe that nothing is impossible with God. How many of you believe that, that nothing's impossible with God? There's a legend that goes like this. Some say it's true and some say it's not. <clears throat> there was a lady who went into an ice cream shop in Kansas City to get an ice cream cone. She came into the store, she placed her order for an ice cream cone, and then she, uh, she got out the money to pay the clerk, and the clerk gave her her change back, and she turned around with her ice cream cone, and she had her change, and she turned around to face the person in the line right behind her and came right face to face with Brad Pitt. And so, you know, Brad Pitt's home is Springfield, Missouri, so it's not you know, totally out of the realm of possibility that he would be in that area. Uh, so this little legend goes, the story goes, he was actually there filming, and so there's all kinds of reasons why he might have been there. But she was so taken aback, and, and she looked into his blue eyes, which made her knees buckle. She could not say a word, and so all she did was just, you know, walk out the door. So, and she walked out the door, never saying a word, with her heart pounding inside of her. She gets outside... And she's trying to regain her comp composure, can't believe who she's just seen, what, what's just happened to her, and, and suddenly she realizes that she's forgotten her ice cream cone. <laughs> so she turns around to go back into the store to get the ice cream cone that she believes she's forgotten and left there, and as she's walking back in, she meets Brad Pitt again walking out the door. And so she comes to face face-to-face -face with him one more time, and, and he says to her, he says, ma'am, are you looking for your ice cream cone? And unable to utter a word because she's so, you know, dumbfounded by this, she just went. <laughs> and he said, looked at her, and he said as kindly as he could, he said, you put it in your purse with your change. How many of you ever had a moment like that? <laughs> when was the last time the presence of God made you forget something? When was the last time? When was the last time that you were absolutely so amazed at who He is and what He has done that made you forget your TV show, made you forget the baseball game, made you forget the Mavericks? Made you forget the cowboys. When's the last time that God's presence was so overwhelming that it just absolutely swept over you so powerfully that everything else 
faded into insignificance. When's the last time for you? There's a writer by the name of Annie Dillard who has said, reverence and awe have been replaced in the church with a yawn of familiarity with God. The consuming fire has been dwindled down to just a little flickering flame to add a little bit of atmosphere to the church today. She says, with with no blinding light for power and purification, she asks, does anybody have the foggiest idea what sort of power we are calling upon when we pray? She indicates, I'm not sure we understand. The church today is like children playing on the floor with chemistry sets mixing up batches of TNT. And we have no idea that as we come into the church, we really shouldn't wear hats. We should begin to put on life preservers and crash helmets. Because if God really showed up, we wouldn't know what to do with Him. Many of you have heard the name also Winky Pratney. Winky said, you want to know what real revival is? Revival is when God gets so sick and tired of being misrepresented that He simply shows up Himself. Isn't it amazing that when the Ten Commandments starts off in the book of Exodus, chapter 20, the very first one, (coughs) excuse me, the very first one says this, you shall have no other gods before me. And we need to understand something about that commandment. When God is speaking this, He's not speaking to pagans and atheists, He's speaking to His own people. And when He speaks about idolatry, He's not talking to people that have been worshiping Baal. He's talking to people that know the true God. But he's making sure that he does not dumb God down to what they think he should be, but that he is elevated high to exactly what he has been and is, which is way above us. His thoughts higher than our thoughts. His ways higher than our ways and not just someone who is just like us. And so the commandment in Exodus chapter 20 was not simply for people who did not know God, it was for people who did know God, but who are in danger of making God an idol. God is beyond us, church. He's far beyond us. He is so far beyond us that when we come into a place like this and we start calling on His name, if He were to show up, He would blow every one of us away just because of who He is, just because of His nature just because of what he has done and what he is all about. I'm going to take you this morning to a passage of Scripture in the book of Job, and I want you to go with me on this little journey. I'm kind of go, going to go about it backwards, and I want you to go with me on this journey. <clears throat> as, we, if, as we turn to the book of Job, if you would go there with me, we're going to spend our time this morning in chapter 27, though we'll be reading some of chapters 25 and 26, and I'm going to get this frog out of my throat. I'm fine, thank you. All right. And in this chapter, I want you to see a response that Job has to a young man as the young man is trying to tell Job who God is. You know, any study of the book of Job tells us that Job's responses to his difficult circumstances, the circumstances he faced, they are full of instruction to us on how godly people can and should react to life's trials. And there's something for us here in this passage as we consider how incredible our God is. Can I, before I go any further, can I just get any sort of agreement? Does anyone here believe our God is great? All right. I just need to be sure I'm talking to the right people. 
Because last week they would have been standing up and slapping me on the back by now. I'm going to have us look first at Job's response. And then I'm going to back up and put it in context. So put things in reverse order with me here and stay with me. Look at Job chapter 26. The last verse is verse 14 where Job is saying this. Job 26, 14. He says, indeed, these are the mere edges of his ways. This is going to make sense in a minute, so stay with me. These are the mere edges of his ways. Some versions say these are but the outer fringes of the ways of God. Other versions say these are only hints of his power. Or this is just a, this is just a thumbnail sketch of who God is. And then we go on to read this which captured my attention. And he says this, And how small a whisper we hear of him. What we're going to read about in just a moment, I want you to keep it in this context. This is just God whispering. But the thunder of his power, who could stand it? Who could stand it? Job is saying, what I've just told you, which we'll read, this is just a swatch. This is just a tiny sample. This is just a sketch of what and who God is. And then he elaborates and he says, this is just a small part. And this is just his whisper. But then he closes by saying, but if God thunders... With his mighty voice, who could take it? Who could possibly stand it? And Job is saying this. You all have a context by which you understand the condition Job is in. Job says, I'm so overwhelmed with his whisper that if he were to talk in a full thundering voice, oh, who could stand I would melt. Who could stand it? If he spoke in his full voice or if he thundered. This response we are reading of Job is to one of his young comforters who has come to comfort him. And basically, Job, in his response to him, and we're going to put this all in order in a second, Job is saying, dude, you have no idea who you're talking about here. You don't have a clue who you're really dealing with. Now, let me take you back to how the conversation starts with that in place. Job, right in the midst of his suffering, right in the midst of the pain that he's going through, that from chapter 26, which we just read, from that comes this frustrated response to one of Job's comforters that's trying to tell him about God. Now, let me tell you who this young comforter is. It's a young man by the name of Bildad, probably a recent seminary graduate, trying to tell Job what the textbook says about God. How many know there's lots of people who can tell you what the textbook says? How many know that's true? But the truth is, you know, I have always believed this. People with experience should never be at the mercy of people with simply an opinion. You didn't get that. People with experience should never be at the mercy of people with simply an opinion. But it seems to be true. There are lots of people with an opinion about who God is and what God is. But they are lacking in experience. But I want to talk to somebody who's walked with God. I want to talk with somebody who knows what it's like to be in the depths of despair and have the Lord lift them out of that. 
I want to talk to somebody who knows what it is to have him be their glory and the lifter of their head. Can I get a witness here this morning? So finally, Job just loses it with this young man who has come to him to comfort him. And he goes into this whole discussion on the greatness of God, which we'll get to in a moment. But look now with me at chapter 25, very short chapter. I want you to see, here's Bildad trying to tell Job what he learned in seminary from the textbooks about God. Let me tell you, Job, in my estimation and in my great learning, this is what God is about. Chapter 25, verse 1. Dominion and fear, which also could be interpreted as awe, dominion and awe, belong to him. He makes peace in his high places. And this is certainly true. He's speaking here of the omnipotence of God. Dominion and awe and fear belong to, belong to God, and that's true. Verse 3 of chapter 25. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not rise? Now the young man is bringing in not, uh, not only the omnipotence, but he's bringing in the omnipresence of God. God is everywhere, and that's true. And then all of a sudden, thinking he's speaking of the greatness of God, Bildad begins to form this argument in the next verse that just hits the wrong button with Job, who is in the midst of his suffering. And Bildad begins to propose, because God is great, because God is everywhere, then who can be right with God? How then can, verse 4, how then can man be righteous before God? Or how can he be pure who is born of a woman? And Job says, wait, wait a minute. I was with you on that first part, and I was with you on that second part. But something about what you just said, that don't, that's not right. Something's not right about that. Have you ever had that feeling someone's talking to you and just that inner something goes, that's not right. Anybody ever had that? Thank God for the Holy Spirit that lives inside that says, that's not right. That's not right. Well, that's what's happening here to Job. Job says, wait, wait a minute. That doesn't make sense to me. Something about that just doesn't feel right. You can say he's great. You can say he's everywhere. But for you to say that we can't be right before him, that makes no sense to me, young man. Becky and I got on a plane this past Thursday coming home from being in New York, flying out of, uh, we went from Philadelphia to New York, we were at the Brooklyn Tabernacle for their prayer service on Tuesday night, flying out of LaGuardia back to DFW. And I had looked at the weather pattern the night before and that morning and I knew that it was probably going to be a rough day of flying. I looked to see the weather. It looked like the whole thing was stretched from, it looked like Dallas-Fort Worth to New York City, all across the country. And this wasn't going to be pretty. It's the, all right along our flight path. Now, I do enough flying these days to be um, not as weird about it as I used to be. I used to be really uncomfortable with it. But to myself, I was saying, I didn't even say it exactly to her. She knew I'd check the weather. I hope this plane can get up and get through all this weather stuff in Jesus' name. That's basically what I was saying inside. And I confess that as I enter the plane, I always look into the cockpit just to put my eyes on the pilot. Anybody else do that? I just want to see him or her. Just to see if I feel comfortable with them. I don't know what I'm going to do about it if I'm not. They didn't ask me to pick my pilot for the flight. Don't know what I would do, but I just want to look. So we, we enter the plane, and I look in the cockpit, and I saw this pilot with gray hair. (laughs) 
not only my brother did he have gray hair, because I don't just check out his hair, I look at his pilot case, that little square case, it's got lots of stickers on it. (laughs) And his coat, hanging up right there in the door, looked a little bit worn to me, which I took as all of this as a great sign of encouragement. And on that coat seemed to be all the stuff that he probably would have would indicate that he has done this a time or two before. And so it all made me happy as I thought, you're old, you got stickers, your coat looks bad, you know what you're doing, you can fly this plane. (laughs) What I didn't need to see was some young guy with a shiny new jacket, a shiny pilot case with no stickers on it, excited about piloting his first flight. No, 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 no. I want the old guy who's been through the storm to get that plane up in the air and to get us safely back to Dallas. Can I get a witness on this? So when I look at chapter 25, I see Bildad as the bright-eyed young pilot with the shiny suit and the shiny pilot case with not even one sticker on it. I want to listen to the old guy who's lost his children, who's lost his property, who's lost his health, and yet he's still serving God. That's the guy I want to talk to. And now Job, like that old pilot that I was so happy to see, he is about to go off on Bildad. He is going to lose it right here in just a second. You probably never heard it read like I'm about to read it, okay? And I love this. I love the reality and I love the authenticity of it. And here is Job's reply in chapter 26, and it is from the message. I don't go there often, but it just worked for this today. Job chapter 26. Job answered, well, you've certainly been a great help to a helpless man. You came to rescue just in the nick of time. What wonderful advice you've given to a mixed up man. What amazing insights you've provided. I can just see his head bobbing. What amazing insights you have provided. Where in the world did you learn all this, and how did you become so inspired? How many of you sense the mocking and the sarcasm? And he just rose up and came against this young man. He said, look at your pilot case. No stickers, buddy. Look at my bag. I've got stickers, and I'm going to show, I'll show you what God is like. You got all your stuff from a textbook, but let me tell you what God can do because I have lived it, and I know exactly what God can do. And Job starts in verse 5, and he says, listen to me. Let me take you to hell and let you see. This is what happens in Job 26, verse 5. Stay with me here. Here's what Job said. You know what? The dead tremble, those who live beneath the waters. The underworld is naked in God's presence. The place of destruction is uncovered. Don't forget what the condition Job is in. Don't forget everything that he's lost, everything that he has, has had to give up. You know that story. So here's what Job was saying to this guy. Let me take you to the depth of hell and tell you this. As strong as the devil is, as strong as temptation is, guess what? It sits there naked before an almighty God. It's trembling before him. He says, you want to know how powerful God is? Hell can't even match him. It's not even a contest. It's not God versus the devil because the devil has already lost and he knows he's already lost. He says he stands there naked and trembling and feeble and weak in the presence of Almighty God. So point number one is this. Hell is afraid of God. And all those spirits tremble when God shows up. Somebody say amen to that today. Job 26, verse 7. He goes on, he says, God 
stretches the northern sky over empty space, little guy. I added that part. God stretches the northern sky over empty space, and he hangs the earth on nothing. This isn't bells and whistles, church. This isn't smoke and mirrors. No, God takes this planet and he sticks it out there. When the creation takes place, he takes the earth, he takes the sun, he takes Jupiter, he takes Mars, and he hangs them out there on nothing. That's how great our God is. Job is saying to young Bill Daddy, he says, you want to know how great God is? He takes planets and hangs them and there's no strings attached. Hallelujah. No strings attached. Matthew Henry, the great Puritan, says this, the art of man couldn't hang a feather on nothing, yet God hangs planets on nothing. How great is our God? Somebody give the Lord Jesus praise today. <laughs> 26 verse 8. He wraps the rain in his thick clouds, and the clouds don't burst with the weight. He covers the face of the moon, shrouding it with his clouds. You know what Job was saying? He was saying, young man, guess what? Nature belongs to our God. You think you've read all this in your textbook? Let me tell you something about God. Nature belongs. There's no mother nature. There are laws of nature that God set up and God established. Mother nature doesn't exist. It's God's laws, not nature's laws. Job is saying God was the one who put those laws in place. He knows when and where to let the clouds cover. He knows when the rains are to come. There's a God that can be on a boat ride, and if the storm is too much, if a storm comes up too big, he can get up from sleep, wake up, and say, shut up, and go right back to sleep in the same breath. And he can do that in your storm as well, dear friend. It's the kind of God we're talking about. Let me take you to history and talk to you about how he got the children of Israel out of Egypt. He was controlling all of nature. Think about this. This is the God that doesn't even fight fair. He's got so much power, so much resource, so much that's available to him, doesn't even fight fair. He'll use bugs because he controls the bugs. He'll use hail. He uses lice. And one part of the scripture, you ready for this? He uses hemorrhoids. First Samuel 5, 6, those of you worded, I'm lying to you. Pastor Dan, really, yesterday in the sermon you said... Where in Scripture did you find? God doesn't play fair. He can fight with anything he wants. He's God. He's the sovereign God of the universe. Verse 12 says he quieted the sea with his power. How great is our God? Oh, somebody say it today. How great is our God? How great is our God? You know what's interesting? Let me show you something in Exodus chapter 15. You don't have to go there. Remember how God split the waters? Let me put some perspective in it for you. Exodus 15 says, but you, blew it, blew with, but you blew with your breath, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord, glorious in holiness, awesome in splendor, performing great wonders? You raised your right hand, and the earth swallowed our enemies. It's amazing to me that when you look at this passage on how he opens up the Red Sea, when the enemy says they will pursue, the Bible says in verse 10, God just blew, and the Red Sea opened up. How great is our God? And the Red Sea opens up. It's not Hollywood. This is God. 
With his nostrils he did this. Back to Job 26, now verse 11. The foundations of heaven tremble. They shudder at his rebuke. By his power the sea grew calm. By his skill he crushed the the great sea monster. Verse 13. His spirit made the heavens beautiful and his power pierced the gliding serpent. And then... Job rises to the climax of this speech that he's giving to young Bildad. Verse 14, and he says, These are just the beginning of all that he does, young man. Merely a whisper of his power. All of these things that he did. The Red Sea opened. It's a whisper of his power. Who then can comprehend the thunder of his power? God creates planets, hangs them on nothing. He does that when he whispers. All these things God does, he's merely whispering. If God were to begin to go all out, if he were to begin to raise his voice, who could stand it? And then Job says to Bildad, that's the God you're trying to tell me about. Don't give me your textbook, man. I don't want the textbook stuff. Let me tell you, that's the God that I've lived That's the God. Let me tell you what he's about. How great is our God? Listen to me, he says, who's gone through it and is still going through it. Let me tell you how awesome. And it's God just whispering. Have you ever watched when someone of prominence or someone famous walks in a room? It hasn't honestly happened to me very often, but on the odd occasion I've been in a circumstance where someone of great prominence has shown up or someone famous has come into a, a room. It's always interesting to me, without them saying a word, without them making a sound, they simply walk in the room and the, their mere presence changes the atmosphere. I mean, how many know what I'm talking about? You've seen it. Usually it's the loud person that doesn't have much going on. Usually uh, it's you know, the person who's trying to make all the noise, trying to get all the attention. No, it's the one who's quiet that is the one who's got something going on. Spurgeon would say, it's the empty truck down the street that makes the most noise. When someone walks in the room and makes a lot of racket, you know, hey man, hey dude, you know, that's, that's not the person who's, who's got it all together. It's that silent person who's got more there going on than, than you think. Watch that person. They don't have to show off because they've got nothing to prove. Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman who no longer has anything to prove. Sila. Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman who no longer has anything to prove. And what Job was saying here is this. God doesn't have to shout. You're dealing with the most exciting, the most loving, incredible being in all the universe. And creation is just his whispering. So I have three questions for you today before I wrap up. Question one. If that's just his whisper, all these things we've read that he's done, if that's just his whisper, then whom are you going to fear? If this is what God, when he just whispers, what are you going to be afraid of? Paul says in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? If this is what God does with a whisper, then who is it or what is it that can destroy you or come against you? Some of you have a similar testimony to mine. I've heard others share us. Uh, similar circumstances, but I know what it is to have a man hold me at gunpoint. You've heard me tell that story. It happened to me in March of 1993. Absolutely thinking he has my life in his hands. It would have been nothing for him to pull that trigger. 
I still occasionally look back on that situation. I think it, it's, I, I don't know what stopped him from pulling the trigger, but the truth is I do. Because I stand here today alive because if God is for you, who can be against you? I think he could have pulled that trigger and pulled it and pulled it and nothing would have ever happened because if God's decided Dan's going to live, Dan's going to live. Same thing happens for you. God is for you. Who can be against you? If this is God whispering, what do you have to fear? It was the psalmist David, David who said in Psalm 27, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? It's the Lord who's the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Listen, can you imagine if Moses was trying to figure out leaving Egypt how are we going to provide for what historians say were some three or three and a half million people? You've got to feed three million people every day. Someone has done the math on what it would take for Moses to lead the people through the desert. This is from the U.S. Army's quartermaster general. I want you to listen to it. It's fascinating information. Because you know the story of Moses leading the people out of Egypt. Moses would need 1,500 tons of food per day. Not once a week. Every day, that's filling two freight trains, each a mile long. Every day. Just for cooking, you need 4,000 tons of firewood, a few more freight trains, each a mile long. And this is just for one day, not to mention they need to keep, uh, the firewood to keep warm. And this is not, for one, not only for one day, not only for a week. This went on for 40 years. And let's not forget about water. They only had enough to drink and wash a few dishes. No bathing. It would take 11 million gallons of water per day. 11 million gallons of water per day. We're used to seeing that little picture that we saw in Sunday school of Moses taking a stick and tapping a rock and the water kind of trickling out of it like a, coming out of a faucet. He needs 11 million gallons a day. 11 million. It would take freight train cars 1,800 miles long to carry that much water. Here's another thing. They had to get across the Red Sea in one night. If they went on a narrow path just two abreast, the line would be 800 miles long and require 35 days and nights to complete the crossing. So to get across in one night, you ready for this? The space in the Red Sea that God went and it opened up, it had to be three miles wide. How great is our God? Let me tell you, God doesn't mess around. He knew exactly the math. He knew exactly what it was going to take. They didn't walk two abreast. They walked 5,000 abreast right across because God parted the waters three and a half miles wide. And not only that, but every time they camped at the end of the day, because there are three and a half million people, they needed a landmass about the size of Rhode Island, 750 square miles. Do you actually think Moses was in the back in Goshen going, oh no, we need water. Oh, we need food. How are we going to get across the Red Sea? He had no idea. He was ready to turn back. Let me tell you something. God provided the food. God provided the water. God opened the Red Sea. And he did it for 40 years. And you're worried about the bill that came in last week? I think God can figure it out. How great is our God? If you are sitting here this morning burdened down with the stuff of life, we know what that's like at our house. Some of you are thinking, I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills. I don't know how this is going to happen. 
I don't know what I'm, what's going to happen with my daughter who's not living for Jesus or my son or my grandson who's not living for Jesus. And the Lord is saying to you today, did you see what I did for 40 years? Do you know how I provided for three and a half million people every day for 40 years? And the Bible says their shoes didn't even wear out. Everything was taken care of. So my question to you is this. If that's God just whispering, then who do you have to fear, church? My next question is this. I'll be done sometime. It's a little more personal. If that's God just whispering, then why don't you worship? What is it? You come to the house of the Lord and you just can't lift your hands. What is it that when Pastor Brent or Gerard or Jovan, they stay, stand here and they're encouraging us to worship. I say, come on, church, let's worship the Lord today. Let's lift our hands. And all of a sudden, you get this self-consciousness you can't utter a sound. We say, well, let's clap our hands. and Golf clap. Doesn't somebody need to get right in your face and say, are you serious? Are you serious? The one who hangs planets on nothing? The one who parted the Red Sea with just a breath? And you can't open your mouth. You can't lift your hands. You can't worship the Lord. How great is our God? How great is our God? How great is our God? Bless his name forever. Bless his name forever. You can go to the Cowboy game and you go to the Ranger game and somebody hits a home run and that sign comes on with all those letters and it says, make some noise. And you go crazy. You lose your voice and you, you give up everything you've got just because someone, the sign said, make some noise and people are losing their mind. And here's the truth. You're making some noise for someone. They didn't heal you. They didn't pay your bills. They didn't take your child who was away from God and bring him back. They didn't get you to church here this morning. They didn't get you up today. They didn't provide new mercies for you. And you had the audacity to make noise for them. Listen, when you come into the house of the Lord, let's remember this. You've come to worship the one who saved you, who's changed you, who's redeemed you, who's done miracles. This is Jesus. This is God. Let's all stand together. And that's just him whispering. Whispering. God, you whisper and a sea opens up. Whisper, and three and a half million people are fed. If that's God whispering, then why won't we worship? Question number three. Don't anybody leave. I'm almost done. If that's just God whispering, then what is it that keeps you from being saved and turning your life over to God? Why are you running from God? Why do you remain distance from God? If this is God when he whispers, 
you tell me who out there have you found? Tell me, you bring them to me. Who have you found that can match that? And why wouldn't you turn your life over to him? The one we've described to you today who created everything that there is, including you. Why wouldn't you turn your life over to him today? Because the truth is, you are a miracle. You were formed in your mother's womb. You were knit in your mother's womb. You have a God-designed purpose, and you were created to come back to God. When God made you, he fine-tuned you, and you're going to find ways to run from him. You're going to find ways to distance yourself from him. No, no, it should be the other, the other way. You should be running to him. This thought struck me as I was preparing this week, thinking about how awesome God is when he simply whispers. Remember what Paul said in Thessalonians when Christ comes the second time? For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a, with a what? Church, can you imagine? With what he has done was simply a whisper. And the day is coming, and it is coming. When the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. We've not even experienced the shout of God. Imagine what that will be like. Now from the balcony to the back of the main floor to the front, he's whispering to your soul and he's saying, this is your day to get saved. You know what? Today is the day of salvation. Today is the good day for you to turn your life to Jesus. He's whispering to you. Today is the day of salvation. It's time to stop running. Come to Jesus. If that's just a whisper, whom then shall you fear? If that's just his whisper, why won't we worship? If that's just his whisper, then why won't we get saved today? Somebody here today, I don't know who you are. By the way, I want to say thanks to those of you who've worked the night shift and you stay awake and come to church and listen to this boring preacher. Thank you for coming. Bless you today. Somebody here needs to say, I'm ready to turn my life over to God. Tried everything else. So with every head up and with every eye open, we're going to be here to cheer you on today. If you're here saying, no more running from God for me, I want the God who can do it all with just a whisper. If that's you, I want you to lift your hand right where you are. Who here is responding to the voice of the Lord? Come on, lift your hand. Lift your hand. Lift your hand. If you're lifting your hand, I can't see very well because of the lights. I want you to step out from where you are. Come down here. The pastor's going to be here to meet you. Come on, step out right where you are. I don't care if it's one or a hundred, it doesn't matter. Someone needs to respond to Jesus today. You've been running too long. And you know what, your heart's pounding right now. You know it's been too long. Come on. Who's responding to Jesus today? Somebody's responding. We're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. We're waiting, we're waiting. Somebody else, bless the Lord. 
Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Somebody else? You've been running, you've been running. It's time to come to Jesus. It's time to come to Jesus. No more running. No more running. No more running. Hallelujah. 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 Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your grace today. You know what, church? The Bible tells us that when someone comes to Jesus, that that's when the angels rejoice. You know what that says to me for the church? It's time to make some noise. 